Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. How are you? Great. It's okay now. Well, as I look out here this afternoon, we'll get to it. As I look out here this afternoon, I have to tell my story about the preacher. This preacher was going to give his first sermon. And he was a little nervous, so he got to the church quite early. It was a farming section of our country. The church bells were ringing, and it was time for him to get up into the pulpit And he looked down into the church, and there was only one farmer in the pew. So he went down to the farmer, and he said, I'm supposed to give my first sermon today, and you're the only one who has come. What do you think I should do? And the farmer said, well, I had a load of hay, and I went out to feed the cows, and only one cow showed up, I'd feed the cow. And the preacher said, you got it. Up into the pulpit he goes. Little while later, he finishes, comes down to the farmer, and he said, what'd you think? The farmer said, well, I had a load of hay, and I went out to feed the cow." And only one cow showed up. I don't think I'd give him the whole load. I hope you will remember that when I'm finished speaking. I'd like to thank Cliff and Bill for suggesting me to come and share my experience, strength, and hope with you this afternoon. And I'd like to thank you for coming to be with me on this, the most important day of my life. Not my birthday, not my feast day, not the anniversary of my last drink. It's just simply the only day I have. And when people come to be with you at significant times in your life, you try, at least I do, to remember them in some other way. And I will try to remember you because you chose to be with me on this, the most important day of my life. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a woman. I'm a member of a religious community. I am a member of Alcoholics Anonymous in good standing. In particular, the Forest Hills group in Queens. And incidentally, my name is Sister Maureen. Thank you. At this moment, I stand in awe of God's love for me. I stand in awe of you. I stand in awe of my relationship with you. And I stand in awe of Maureen. One of the things that I'm very partial to in our fellowship is that it's a fellowship of equals. There are no titles in Alcoholics Anonymous. No one really cares what you do for a living. I like that. And you come along and you introduce yourself as sister. Isn't that somewhat of a title? 
Well, it happens to be my name. It's the name that I've been using most of my life. It's the name that's on all my important papers. It's the name that's written up quite well in two police stations here in the city. And it's the name that I gave to you when I came into your beautiful presence some time ago now. A call had been made for me, and I went to the Forest Hills group. And I went up the stairs of the school and down the stairs into a little room. And a fellow jumped up, and he came over, and he put his hand out, and he told me who he was, and he said, would you care to give us your first name? And I was so taken by the fact that somebody was showing some interest in me. Because at that point in Maurice's life, people had lost interest. And I know why today. No picnic to be associated with an untreated sick alcoholic. And so I said to this fellow, I said, me? I said, my name is Sister Maurice. And this fellow didn't say to me, you can't stay here with that one. Nor did he say to me, your mother doesn't call you that, does she? He said, hi, Sister Maurice. And am I just over 19 years with you one day at a time? No one has even suggested that I call myself anything else. The other beautiful thing that happened for me that evening with the same fellow was he used a very beautiful gesture with me. He used that beautiful sense of touch. He let his hand touch mine in a handshake. I was very impressed with that. Because at that point in Maurice's life, people were not interested in touching me. They were talking to me from across the room, behind closed doors, and calling me up on the telephone, and writing me poison pen letters. And here I arrive among strangers, so I thought. And somebody wants to know my name, and somebody uses that beautiful sense of touch with me. Well, my name is important to me. But the most important thing about me, and the most important thing I will say for myself on this day, is what I told you first and foremost, that I am an alcoholic. And when I say that, I am reminded once again that of all the things I do, my most important task, job, obligation at all times is that I stay sober. And I do that best. <clears throat> I do that best through the principles and traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous as they have been written. When I came to you a while back, you gave me a book, and you called it Big. <laughs> and I said to myself, boy, do these people practice what they preach? Because I had learned a spec about keep it simple. And I said, you can't get much simpler than that. This is a big book. I was also teaching first grade at the time. And in first grade, you teach the children the word big. And you teach them sizes and shapes. And so I could see that this book was not small. And you told me that I should try. And try is a very key word in my life. Small word, but it's a very important. You told me I should try to live my life based on what is found in our big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I try, with your help, to do exactly that. And without your help, I will have no success at all. I don't know that from personal experience, because I have yet to leave you. But I know it well from the experience of others. You know, the little sheep stays with the flock 
for one reason and one reason only, self-preservation. And the little sheep that strays from the flock is the one that's found in the ditch and over the embankment and hanging from the barbed wire fence. I have a drunkalog that would tell you quite well that all by myself I could stay very sick and quite drunk, but I truly believe I cannot stay sober and fairly well without you. Alcohol became a way of life for me in a very short period of time. By that I mean it dictated my moods, it made my decisions for me, it said you will, Maurice, and it said you won't. Things that I thought I had the final say in, not when this alcohol came into my life. The first drink of the day for an alcoholic will always have the final say. When I say, too, that alcohol became a way of life for me, by that I mean everything began to center around that next drink. I'd be working real hard with my kids in the first grade at 10 o'clock in the morning. And I'd look at my watch and I'd say, 10 o'clock, going to send these kids out to the bathroom, then they can have their snack. I'll get the teacher next door to keep an eye on them, because I am a responsible teacher. And then I'll go to the convent and get a drink and be back when this is all over. (laughs) And then I'd look again and I'd say, you can wait till 12 o'clock. You can wait two hours. You're a strong-willed girl. You don't have to drink now. And I'd look again and I'd say, maybe there's something in my school bag from yesterday. And the one thing I don't recall doing was waiting until 12 o'clock. And yet, during my act of alcoholism, if you were to approach me, and you were to say to me, Sister Maureen, who or what is the center of your life? I would have been insulted by your question. Because you should have known by my title, you should have known by the particular dress I wore at that time called Habit, You should have known by the particular building I lived in at that time called Convent. You should have known that the center of my life was God, and I would have been insulted by your question. And all I have to tell you today, quite honestly, that the focus had shifted, and it shifted from God to that next drink, and I justified the use of alcohol in my life. Since this is an open meeting, and... Perhaps we have some hale and hearty social drinkers here, or some who labor under the illusion that they are. (laughs) I want to tell you that it was not using alcohol that brought destruction on my life. Certainly not. But when the abuse of alcohol, when the preoccupation, when the focus, When the trouble came about, then alcohol was not in my best interest. It was not one of my goals in life to become an alcoholic. I don't recall any dark and gloomy day that I got up and I said, by six o'clock tonight, going to be an alkie. (laughs) I believe it's a sickness that comes to a person. So I don't hold myself responsible for the alcoholism. I have made my amends to the best of my ability, and I continue to do so when necessary. But I hold myself extremely responsible for the sobriety that is mine this day. And if you should ever hear along the journey that Maurice is back drinking, please, please, Don't call me a victim. Call me a volunteer. And the very next thing you should say about me is that somewhere along the line, she wasn't willing to do everything necessary to stay sober. I cannot plead ignorance today. I go 
with the words of chapter 5 to us. Rarely have we seen a person fail. We thoroughly followed our path. I was affected physically, mentally, spiritually, socially, and emotionally. Of all those areas, physically, I fed out pretty well, even though there were times that I tried to arrange my own physical death. I used to leave the city here and drive across the George Washington Bridge and go up the Palisades Parkway. And I used to pull off where you could sightsee. And I'd sit there and I'd say, when that car is gone, when those kids are gone, I'm going to run this car over the embankment because I don't know what's the matter with me. And then I'd say, well, maybe I'll go get a drink. I'll come back another time. So it was not to be part of my story that I would die physically. But you know, there are other ways of dying. Perhaps you can identify with them. I suffered the death of my values. I suffered the death of my integrity. I suffered the death of everything that I stood for as a woman and everything that I stood for as a sister. All those areas of my life died. Outwardly, I looked pretty good. I held a job. I did it quite well. I tried to keep up with my responsibilities, and above all, above all, I always said my prayers. And many of you have shared with me along the journey that you thought you missed the boat because you didn't pray enough. I want you to know I prayed enough for you and all belonging to you. (laughs) So this disease of alcoholism must be something so big that prayer all by itself, will not take care of it. And that's a fact. I denied that alcohol was my problem. I had the kind of denial that this shepherd had. This fellow was out tending his flock, and he came back to his tent because he wanted to eat a little pouch of figs that somebody had given him. So he lit a candle, and he took out the first fig, and he put it up to the candle, And the fig had a worm in it, so he took out another fig. And that had a worm in it. So with the third fig. Then he blew out the candle and he ate the figs. (laughs) That's the Nile. I was somewhat relieved when I learned that denial is the major presenting symptom of alcoholism. That helped me. And that it's very different from lying. Some of the times that I exercise that denial. You know, I could come here today and I could tell you what it's like in recovery today. And you could go home or you could say to somebody on the way home or having a cup of coffee later on, you could say, well... You know, she spoke about recovery, and of course that would be pretty much the same for us. We follow the same journey, that of 12 suggested steps. But I wonder if she ever felt like I felt. I wonder if she ever did like, you know, I didn't hear her say that. And then some people would say, well, of course not. You see, the sisters, they must have a different breed of alcoholism. (laughs) Let me share with you. My mother was in the hospital, not too far from here, having a total hip operation. Went every day to be at my mother's bedside, because that's where every good daughter should be. And there I was. My mother, on the other hand, would say to me, if you don't come tomorrow, it'll be just fine. (laughs) And I'd say, there she is with all her pain, and she's thinking of me. Well, I have just one sister, and she's also a sister, a member of my own community, and at that time stationed in New York. And during my active alcoholism, my sister secretly wished she had joined a missionary community and lived in Peru. (laughs) So she came to visit my mother one day, and she gave me a little wink, come outside, and out we go, off the main drag there, and she towers over me. And she put her fingers under my nose 
And she said with tears in her eyes, why? Why would you come to this hospital at 4 o'clock in the afternoon drinking? Now, we had been down this road before, so I made a decision. You know, and you know how we are when we make decisions. (laughs) And my decision was, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to say a word. But, you know, being that typical alcoholic, I couldn't let well enough alone. I don't recall saying anything, but I took my right hand, which was the more powerful of my two, and I gave her just a little belt. came running down the hall and they are yelling, sisters, sisters. Uh, Not because we were the duty girls, but we were dressed very much like sisters used to dress, some still dress today, every piece from stem to stern. My veil is on the floor, husband someplace else. People are starting to gather, you know. This was not an everyday occurrence there. And you want to know the thoughts of a sick, untreated alcoholic? My thought was not, Gee, if I hadn't taken that last drink. My thought was not, gee, if I hadn't belted her. My thought was, if only she hadn't screamed. (laughs) The other thought I had was, my purse had fallen down by my shoes, making a rather loud thud as it falls to the floor. Now, I'm up against the wall. I got the purse between my shoes. And my thought is, when I can get down there, I'm going to get my purse and be gone. Now, I wasn't concerned about the few bucks in the purse. I have a vow of poverty. I was concerned about the pint of holy water in the purse. Christian Brothers Branding. <laughs> now, a fellow asked me one night after I had shared, he said, Sister, can I, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, do you think you drank Christian Brothers Brandy because you were a Catholic sister? <laughs> Gee, I said, I wish I had thought of that one. Now, there's only one word to describe somebody who'd be in that position. I had to go through all those other words. Maybe we have somebody here today still going through those words. I would suggest that you you leave them here. Bad, hopeless, weak-willed, sinner. Oh, I did a lot with that one. But the respectful, dignified way to describe somebody who'd be in that position, sick, unwell, not playing with full debt. That's respectful. (laughs) Or I heard a fellow at a meeting one night, and he described himself as, he said he was a quad low. another fellow another time, he said he had a photogenic mind, he just never had any film in the camera. (laughs) But I had to go a little bit before I got to that point. Now, if you drink and you drive, you might just have an accident or two or three, depending upon your circumstance. My first accident, July of 1970. And my good friend, Sister Rose, over here, was in court, mind you, over the dismissal of a teacher from her school, Rose being the principal of the school. This is a big case here in the Archdiocese. In 1970, they were not taking the sisters to court. 
That has changed in recent times, but they weren't doing it then. Now, Rose had a lawyer appointed by the Archdiocese, and I said, I will be in court to see that he does his job. The night before the trial, Rose called me up and she said, Maurice, please, please, don't come to court. I said to myself, there she is with all her trouble and she's thinking of me. Well, I have heard Rose share her story in that marvelous and wonderful program, Al-Anon, that parallels ours, and indeed she was thinking of herself, and rightly so. Well, I didn't want to be any trouble to Rose. I never wanted to be trouble to anybody. So I said, okay, I won't go to court, but I'll be there around lunchtime, and uh, I'll take you to lunch, and you'll brief me, and I'll advise you for the afternoon session. I was in graduate school that summer, and I drove well-fortified from the north end of the Bronx to the Wall Street section of our city. It was five minutes after 12, lunchtime, a working day in Wall Street. And the weather was clear. Those are the things that they told me on the top of the police report. A United States mail truck that was parked legally at the curb got in my way. <laughs> and I smashed into it. And when the policeman came on the driver's side, it was obvious what I did for a living. So he said, Sister. Then he said something that I thought was so strange. He said, Sister, could you have been drinking? I looked at this guy like he had taken leave of his senses. I proceeded to tell the officer about my friend who was in court and how upset I was, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I went into a blackout, eventually a pass out, as was my custom. I woke up in a convent short distance away. I woke up in a strange bed. It's not my custom then, it's not my custom today, to wake up in strange beds. <laughs> obvious to me that many of you have your story. <laughs> well, you know, we all have the same tricks of the trade at that moment like that. You know, where am I? What happened? And how do you get out of here? <laughs> I used to look for something of the familiar. I got it immediately. Uh, my friend Rose was talking to another sister out there, and the other sister happened to be a nurse. And neither of us knew her, but I got to the door just as the nurse said to Rose, she said, your friend is either on pills or she has been drinking, and in order to help her, you are going to have to hurt her. Oh, I thought that was the poorest advice I had ever heard. <laughs> so I figured I'd go back, get a little more rest to handle Rose when she came. And Rose came and asked me what happened, and I told her. I lost control of the car because I was so upset about the court case. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was actively drinking, and once in a while today, but the difference today is that I have help for this little box that sits up here. Yeah. But way back, and long before the picking up of the first drink, I had what I would describe as reverse thinking. If we think of healthy, positive thinking as clockwise, I was always counterclock. Mountains were molehills, and molehills were mountains. The car was in my mother's name. My mother didn't know anything about the accident. The car was fixed back out on the road, three weeks. And Rose would say to me, when are we going to tell your mother about the accident? I'd say, never. <laughs> Why would you do a thing like that? Then you know the fears that set in? What if Rose tells your mother? So you call Rose up and you invite her out for supper. <laughs> you go to a little restaurant and you're well fortified as you lean across the table and you say to Rose the following. If you dare to tell my mother about the accident, someday you will come out of your convent. I will be sitting in a car.
and when you cross the street, that will be it. That's called threatening someone's life. Well, I always share that in my story, and uh, one time where I was speaking, a fellow came up at the, a friend of ours came up at the end, one of our sister friends, and she said, Maurice, I have to ask you this question. She said, do you really think you would have run over, Rose? I said, gee, no one has ever asked that question. Not even Rose. <laughs> I said, let me tell it to you this way. Of myself, no. I wouldn't hurt a fly. I wasn't that kind of a person. I mean, I was so insecure, so awkward, so backward, a basket case. I, I couldn't pick up a fly squatter. I, I wouldn't know how to use it properly. You know, much less that I could pull this off. But see, I had reached a point in my life, through no fault of my own, that you can paint the most tragic scene you can think of, and I could have been the one heading it up. At another accident up there in the Bronx, I took five parked cars with me. Total three damage, two plus my own. Policeman was very gentle with me. It was lovely. He said, Sister, could you, could you tell me a little bit about what happened? I said, Officer, the dog. Where's the dog? The policeman says to me, would you have to know the color of the animal? <laughs> Two of us now who knows there was one. <laughs> well, I went into blackout, pass out, taken to another nearby convent. <laughs> this one I was familiar with. This was the convent where Rose lived, and I told the policeman in my blackout to take me there. I came to at 5.30 the next morning, and I'm up there in the Bronx, and I realized that 46... Children are waiting for their teacher out in Queens. Believe you me, they're not going to be without their teacher. And so I made haste. I looked at myself in the mirror. I was cut, bruised, big lump. Turned to Rose and I said, they offered me medical attention and I refused it. Look at my head. She said, oh, that didn't happen in the accident. <laughs> now, I don't know what your style was, but my style was not to say, oh, it didn't. Could you fill me in? You wait. You wait. Well, she was pretty good. She would take me by the hand, brought me over to the window, and she said, at 2.30 this morning, you were out on the ledge going to jump. And I brought you in. We had a big fight, and that's what happened to your head. And I turned to her, and I said, leave me alone. And off I went to do the best I could with my 46 youngsters. Well, if you're in my line of work, that of being a sister, word gets to headquarters, the boss's office, you know. We have one of those, you know. We call it the mother house. And my boss sent for me one day, and I said, gee, I guess she wants me to be a principal. She wants me to be a boss somewhere. Never entered my sick head that I could be in trouble because the rule was the rule, and I didn't deviate from the rule. So I, that never came to me. So up I go. We sat down, and we're chatting a bit, and all of a sudden she says, Maurice, some of the sisters are saying that you drink too much. Well, I mustered up enough courage to say to her, where are they? <laughs> and she said to me, oh, they don't even want to be mentioned. I said, they feared for their lives. So being that typical alcoholic, you say, let us look at the record. Well, we looked at the record, and when she was finished looking at the record, she was so embarrassed. So much so that she said to me, Maurice, this is terrible. I said, it is? She said, I will never, ever again believe this about any of our sisters. I said, that's a good policy to follow. She gave me an apology. I accepted, and off I went. And as I walked back to the car, I had one thought and one thought only. She will never, ever send for me again. She never did. 
Next time she arrived unannounced. <laughs> so you can see by now that alcohol was no respecter of me because I happened to be Sister Maurice. And yet people will say to me, gee, I, I can't believe that a, that a sister could become an alcoholic. I say, well, let me keep it simple for you. You see, when alcohol went into my body, it didn't stop and say, hey, wait a minute, good sister. <laughs> I went through the stage of anger, resentment against those who love us, against those whom we love. I was very angry first and foremost with God. I had given my life to God. What more did he want? I would sit in so-called meditation. I could never meditate properly because I made too big a deal of it. But I would sit in meditation and I'd try to concentrate on God and I would see God walking away from me. And that made me very angry. You know, and you know how that goes. You don't want to be with me? Well, I don't want to be with you and who needs you anyway? And I heard a fellow one time at a meeting and he said, you know, there are no atheists and agnostics and Alcoholics Anonymous because somewhere along the line, each one of us thought we were God. I could identify with that. So I was angry with God, I was angry with the family, and I was very angry with Rose. Rose used to keep saying to me, Maurice, something terrible is going to happen and we have to get help. And she'd show me a card of a doctor or of a counselor, and I would tell her exactly what she could do with the help. I take care of me. I help others. I don't need help. So the anger turned into another drink and another bottle. And I went through the stage of depression. We drink to be happy, and for some reason it makes people like us unhappy. I cannot identify with social drinking as I know it today. I didn't drink. I didn't like the taste of alcohol. And I began in 1967 after my father's death. And, you know, drinking alcohol while depressed adds misery to misfortune. I didn't know that at that time. And I was using alcohol to ease my pain, and it was great for a little while, a couple of hours. You know, and then this alcohol started becoming a problem for me. So I was using alcohol to lift me out of a depression, and I was getting more depressed. And I went through the bargaining stage. You do this for me, and I'll do that for you. I did all my bargains with God. One bargain I moved to share with you. I thought that God was telling me maybe I shouldn't be a sister anymore, but before I take that final uh, step, I'd start doing things in a different manner. And I remember getting into bed one night with my rosary beads in one hand and hanging on to my sheets with the other hand. And I bargained with God. And I said, please, keep me in this bed tonight without having to take another drink. I'll do more work for you and for your people. Please don't let me drink tonight. Well, you know, the first drink of the day will always have the final say. You know how the story goes. You get up out of the bed. You really don't want to do that. You crawl along the floor and you get your bottles. And you take another drink. And this is one of the few times that I didn't go into a blackout immediately. I must describe for you what my room looked like. I lived in a convent, and my room looked like a little religious gift shop. <laughs> Statues, holy books, you name it, there it was. And I say, when I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I came in here with so much religion. It came out my eyes, ears, nostrils. But I came in here with absolutely, positively no spirituality. None. And so I have this little religious scene, and I take that drink, something I don't want to do. And after I took it, I beat that floor, and I doubted the existence of God. How could a God who loved me created me out of love? How could he allow me to be in that condition when I had asked for his help? Does he even exist? You know, someone has said and well said that Bowery and Skid Row can be a state of mind as well as a place. That cold, isolated, complete cut off from God, self, and others. And that's what I experienced that night. Never been to Bowery, Skid Row, to live there. But I've been up here. I'm sure you can identify with that. And the next thing I did was I yelled out at the top of my lungs, isn't there anybody anywhere who knows what I'm going through? Well, I didn't know you were just up the street and around the corner and a few miles away. 
but I'm sure very glad that somewhere along the journey, God would see fit that we would find one another. You know, C.S. Lewis says in one of his books about relationships, he says it's as if God says to the people in the relationship, I, God, have chosen you for one another. And I believe, my opinion, that when God gives the gift of sobriety to us, he says a few things. And one of the things he says is, you will share relationship with these people. You will come into their lives, and they will come into your life. You think about the relationships you have in the fellowship. Well, if you came in and you met your cousin or you're related by blood, that's something else. But if you think about the, the friends we have in the fellowship today, would we have gotten them of our own choosing? I believe that the relationships had to come from a power greater than ourselves. And I believe that comes when God gives us that gift of sobriety. And so the bargains didn't work out either. Today I can make bargains, deals, promises, commitments, and I can follow through. I attribute that to one thing and one thing only. I don't drink alcohol while I'm sober. Very significant. And the final stage was acceptance. Holy Week and Easter Week of 1971 were horrendous. I will spare you the details. But I was brought home from the Holy Saturday night church services. I was brought home to my mother up there in the Bronx. And when Easter Sunday morning came and I looked into my mother's face and I asked her to sit down, and for the first time in my life, I connected myself with alcohol. And I said, I promise you, on this Easter Sunday morning, I will never drink again. My mother described for me the beautiful life I had, which was going down the tube. But she said, I know if you make a promise, you'll keep it. I said, I will. I'll do it for you. And off I went. One whole week passed and I didn't drink. And I found myself over in the great state of Jersey. And I saw a store that said package. You never know who owns them. You just know what's in there. <laughs> and I went in and I said, I'm going to buy something. And I'm not going to drink it because I promised my mother. I like the definition of insanity that we use. You do the same thing and you expect different results. I bought a couple of bottles and I came back to the Bronx and I didn't drink that Friday. The next day I took the family for a nice little ride in the country. I brought them back safe and sound. I sent them all upstairs and I went off with my, to park the car and with my bottles. And Sunday morning at 5.30 in the morning I came back to my mother and I said, gee, now we really know this will never happen again. My mother said to me, she said, you know, it's Sunday. I knew it was Sunday. I even boarded the Sunday newspaper the night before. She said, you have to go to Mass. I'm very much Sister Maurice, and I have every piece from stem to stern. And I had to be reminded of my Sunday obligation. That's a very big price tag on a drink when I think of a drink now and then. I don't want anyone ever again to remind me of my obligations because I have been drinking. Well, I didn't. Went into my room and I planned another out the window five stories up. I wasn't there too long when in came the troops. Um, three people, two of them I saw as traitors. Real Benedict Arnolds. Put contracts out in their lives immediately. And the third one was my boss. The other two uh, were Rose and my sister, and they had blown the whistle and turned me in. And I had a very difficult time with that. But as I went along in recovery, I heard the words, I saw them written one time, and the words said this. They said that even the most precious treasure can become a burden. And I came to the realization that I was a treasure to my family, to my community, to Rose, but I had become a burden because of this untreated sickness in my body, mind, and spirit. 
Well, I didn't go back to school after that Easter vacation, and we met again on Wednesday, and they did on me what's written up in the professional literature, of which I'm a strong advocate of. They did the process of intervention. They ask you next to nothing, and they make decisions about your life. The whole thing was over in 15 minutes. And the boss, she spoke like this. She said, very gently, she said, arrangements have been made. And they're expecting you in Lutheran General Hospital in Park Ridge, Illinois. Now, she said you could go Friday or Saturday. And I looked at her like, don't you want to talk about it? Can we make a deal? Then I got real close, and I looked into her eyes, and I saw that she was giving me two options to go willingly or unwillingly. <laughs> Off I went to Lutheran General Hospital for 28 days. I'm well written up out there. And there I met you. Well, it was obvious to me why you were there. <laughs> With stories like you had, my word. But we were in agreement immediately. Every patient I met was in agreement with me. And the patients used to say to me, Sister, I know why I'm here. I'm so terrible. I'm so bad. But you, you shouldn't be here. And I, we could agree. <laughs> I couldn't get any of the counselors to agree. Now, I had one free hour. And we were told to sit in our rooms and pray and meditate and whatever. And I used to sit in my room and go from my chair to the wall, banging my head against the wall, yelling and screaming at God, why me? Giving you my life and this is what you've done to me. Well, do you know, my question has not changed. But I'm looking for different answers today. He gives me pretty much the same answers all the time. And I don't find it necessary to yell and scream at him anymore. We have a beautiful thing going, God and myself. And you brought me to that point. But today I say to God, why me, God? Why am I sober? Because most people don't get sober. Oh, you must, you must know that, that most people will have their last drink just before the grave. I'm probably not telling you anything that you don't know. You know, if we were to Take a chart here, and we would have headed alcoholism. You need to divide the chart into two parts. You need to put on one side of the chart all of us who are in recovery. We could take the whole 118 countries of the world and put a number up there. And on the other side of the chart, we could put those that are still out there. You wouldn't even see us. As recovering alcoholics in society, we're a minority group. Just a drop in the bucket compared to those that are still out. Yet we talk about the rooms are packed. We'll all go home today and say we filled the Javits Center. And we'll go out to Seattle in July and they'll say, oh, it was so crowded. And put us all together and we're a drop in the bucket. I find that awesome to have an ultimate terminal condition that kills most people. And by God's grace and the gift of sobriety, mine is arrested this day. I find that awesome. It concerns me a little time when I hear some of my friends say, you know, big deal. So I didn't drink today, so big deal. Oh, I say, that is a big deal. Most alcoholics can't do that for a day. That's why it's called a miracle. And you know, as you go along the journey, the potholes and the detours of life, they're extensive. The losses come and different kind of pains that come, you know. And you might find yourself losing touch with the gift because the detour or the pothole presently is overshadowing that. And I just like to suggest 
that maybe tonight when you put your head on a pillow, you could put it on being in touch with how marvelous and wonderful is the gift of sobriety that most people just don't get. And when I say to God, why me? He says, Maurice, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And I say, why, God? And he says, Maurice, because your work is not finished. I see death. No matter how a person goes to God, I see death as the person's work is finished and they're called home to bigger and better. And if untreated alcoholism is 100% fatal, and that death is interrupted, I believe God wants us to carry the message, our work is not finished. That's the second thing I think God says when he gives the gift of sobriety to us. Your work is not finished. And you know, there are many ways to carry the message. Pontificating at a podium is one of them. (laughs) Only one. The best way to carry a message, arrive any place, any place, sober. You don't have to say a word. That's why we're called a program of attraction rather than promotion. People see it, and sometimes we're not saying anything. But they know there's something different about us. Many ways to carry a message. I saw it as I came in here this afternoon, and some weren't saying anything. And then God says to me, Your first obligation at all times is to yourself, Maurice. In light of your own recovery, I had a little difficulty with that one because I loved taking care of everybody else. But if I don't take care of my sobriety, whatever I pass on, I'm shortchanging them. And so I want to pass on my best. So therefore, I better take care of my recovery first and foremost. I left Lutheran General Hospital with a prescription, that of going to Alcoholics Anonymous. And my counselor said to me, if you are faithful to the prescription, you will only have to return here as our guest. And I said, well, I won't make any promises, but I'll give it my best shot. By God's grace and faithfulness to Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found it necessary to pick up a drink or anything like that since April 17, 1971. I would not be so bold as to tell you I have had my last drink. You see, if I thought I had arrived at such a level of wellness that I could sit back on my laurels, perhaps I wouldn't be as faithful. I accept the definition of alcoholism wherein it says it's an illness subject to relapse. I'm not obsessed with that, but it's very important that I know the reality of my situation. And so I continue to be faithful one day at a time. And people will say to me, gee, after 19 years, you still do this. And I say, yes, because the big book says in the chapter, Fear of Fear, I must continue to work the program as it has been outlined one day at a time. And it doesn't say in parentheses. We don't mean that for you with your 19. They've been the best 19 years of my life, but it's history. This is the day. I'm very partial to the words in the Lord's Prayer that say to us, give us this day our daily bread. My interpretation of that is, I get bread, I get help for the day. I do not have it for the rest of June or into the 21st century. 
And so I continue to do as you have suggested to me when I first came to you. Who am I to think that I should do anything less than what you told me to do when I first came to you? Complacency is a killer. Just my little piece about complacency. I have to share it. I saw lines one time and they said this. We're just hanging somewhere. said, most people who drown are good swimmers. Oh, I thought that was profound. I could have made a whole retreat on that line. And I said, I'm a collector of pieces and lines. And I said, gee, what does that mean for you, Maurice? And God said to me, he said, most people who drown are good swimmers. He said, because they take risks. He said, sometimes the good swimmer goes out into the deep and something happens. And we note that he or she was a good swimmer. And I said, well, what's in there for me, God? And he said, well, he said, you know, you've been around a little while now. You're in a very good place. You could take the risk of straying from the flock and you could drown. And so I continue to do, as you have suggested to me, one day at a time. I didn't have any spirituality, and I asked you about it. And this is what you told me. You told me if I put 12 suggested steps into my life, 12 suggested steps would help me to keep three things in place. A relationship with God, a relationship with self, and a relationship with others. And that is my definition of spirituality. Three. I cannot not have the three. That's spirituality. Spirituality, I found, is more than prayer and meditation and relating to God. And the one that I was missing the boat with very much was I never had a relationship with myself. Never had a love affair with myself. And you have brought me to the point where I have had that. I continue to have a beautiful relationship with Maurice. This is the self I then take to relationship with others. And then this is the self that sits before the God of my understanding. And so those two other areas improved when I got this relationship with myself. And that's my spirituality. I was a person to the extremes when I came to you. I was either a one or a ten. I didn't know a thing about two to nine and I wasn't interested. And you said to me, the twelve suggested steps will give you balance. I said, well, I'll try. And I have come back from the extremes in many, many areas of my life. And I continue to work on the others. And you told me that I had to do more than just not drink and go to meetings. I was faithful to that for much of my first year. And you said, you have to make change. And I said, I don't know how to do it. I hate change. And you said, 12 suggested steps will help you to change. And that has worked for me as well. And so no matter how I think about it, I'm always ahead of the game by staying with the flock and by following those 12 suggested steps. And I'd like to close with some words that I picked up along the journey, and they say this to us. Through no virtue of ours, we have somehow been chosen, snatched back from a grave, from degradation, and clothed again in the robes of human dignity. May we never underrate or take for granted that gift of sobriety that is ours. And to that little piece I add, one's dignity is not preserved in alcohol, but sobriety confers dignity on an alcoholic. And the third thing that God says when he gives the gift of sobriety, he says, here is your dignity Walk tall. And so my prayer for you today will be that you'll continue to have your sobriety. As a result of that, I know, I just know, you'll have your dignity. And I close with the very short version of Maurice's story. And believe you me, when Cliff was telling me about how long I was going to have up here, I was thinking of just giving this short version. And God said to me, well, he said, if the only thing Cliff can say about you is that you were too long, it'll be okay. 
but the short version of Maurice's story. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. And may the God of your understanding help you. And may the God of my understanding help me. May the God of my understanding keep me. And may the God of your understanding keep you, because nobody does it quite as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.